I think the major two strands that you find woven throughout the gospel of Mark are who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Mm-hmm. And we can express that in more uh, technical terms as uh, Christology mm-hmm. and discipleship. And in, in fact, what I like to do, even just on a personal level, if I'm trying to lead someone to Christ, I'm taking them through the gospel of Mark. I like to say, uh, read each story and then briefly think back through what does it tell us about who Jesus is and what does it tell us about what discipleship is, what it means to follow him. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I sat down with Dr. Alan Black, Professor Emeritus of New Testament at the Harding School of Theology in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Black is a returning guest on the podcast, and I encourage you to check out episode 16 of Faith in the Folds to hear my interview with him as he reflected on his 38-year career in teaching. Now, Dr. Black is one of the professors I admire most, and this interview gives several great examples of why I love his teaching style. Some professors set their recommended book list for their classes, and then they never update their syllabus after that to just stick with the same books forever. And then, on the other hand, there are professors like Dr. Black, who are always updating their classes with the best of the most recent scholarship on that class's topic. Several times in our interview on the Gospel of Mark, Dr. Black mentioned new works that brought a fresh perspective to issues in the second gospel. I know I learned a lot from our time together, and I hope you will too. If you enjoyed this episode and think others may benefit from it, could I encourage you to like it and share it on your preferred social media platforms? If you haven't already, would you also consider subscribing to Faith in the Fold so you don't miss out on future episodes? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Dr. Black, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. It is good to see you, sir. How are you? It's great to be here. I'm doing very well. Good, good. And uh, for those of you who uh, who might not be aware, uh, Dr. Black is back in the friendly confines of his old office. We were uh, we were just chatting about that. You, uh, how long did you say you've been up there? I have spent 22 years in this office, and then I was in exile in the dean's office for six years. And then when I retired from being dean, uh, this this office came, happened to come open. That's great. And so I'm feel at home, uh, having been here altogether 38 years, but 22 of those previously in this office. Yeah, and that that, that particular office uh, office room is where I remember uh, remember you from. I like how you describe your time as dean as uh, exile. <laughs> was that a wilderness <laughs> wandering period for you? Well, it was. It was a great thing that I needed to do, and I, I viewed it as a ministry for mm-hmm. those six years, um, and it was an important ministry, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to be back uh, totally in the classroom and with much less administrative responsibilities. Understood, yeah. For those who do not know you or for those who are returning to the podcast, uh, let me refer to um, refer to the audience to Faith in the Folds episode 16, where I interviewed Dr. Black as he kind of reflected on his, uh, his career of full-time teaching for, um, it was about 38 or so years, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and so if you don't know, if you don't know Dr. Alan Black, a professor of New Testament at Harding School of Theology in Memphis, Tennessee, check out Faith in the Folds episode 16. Uh, Dr. Black, uh, tell us, uh, since we're going to be talking about the Gospel of Mark here, would you mind telling us what, what was it about the Gospel of Mark that, uh, that got you interested in, uh, in it? Uh, what, uh, what kind of piqued your, uh, your interest in your uh, scholarly career and, and spending a lot of time in the Gospel of Mark? I think it's, it's foundational nature. Uh, I've always been drawn to the Gospel of Mark, and 
although I have taught the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark here, um, I, strangely enough, I've never taught a course per se in Matthew. Wow. I've taught courses on the teachings of Jesus, mm -hmm. but I've taught Mark far more often. I would say in my 38 years here, I've taught Mark at least 30 times. Wow. And just just have a strong attraction to yeah. that book. So we talk about Mark as a foundational. One thing that, uh, that folks who might listen to this series that we're doing on the New Testament here in the podcast is that um, a lot of folks, it seems like the consensus position amongst uh, folks who study the New Testament very seriously, think that Mark may have been the first gospel written and that later Matthew and Luke might have used Mark and, and maybe another source uh, that either Matthew and Luke shared in common or some unique material to Matthew and Luke. Uh, I, I didn't prompt you ahead of, for this ahead of time, but I, I, I figured this would not be too difficult for us to dig into. Why do some folks think that Mark is probably the first gospel written? The large amount of Mark not only the choice of things to tell us about Jesus' ministry, but also the, the way that is put, the amount of words given to different scenes and, and the, the way in which the sentence is written and so forth. A large part of that appears also in Matthew. In fact, about 90% of Mark appears in Matthew, although okay. often in Matthew in a shorter form. Mark Matthew, will will... Matthew will take a longer story mm -hmm. and shorten it. Yeah, yeah. So often, uh, perhaps because Matthew wants to include so much, uh, then he takes the roughly 90% of the Gospel of Mark. Mark has 661 verses. He takes about 600 of those verses, if you count it that way, hmm. that are incorporated into Matthew, but he reduces them to about 500 verses in Matthew itself. Hmm. And hmm. so you're losing about one sixth of, of the detail of Mark's description of those particular incidences. Hmm. And then with Luke, you have a similar phenomenon, although Luke uses significantly less of the Gospel of Mark. Luke uses perhaps around 65% parallels to Mark. He also tends to uh, shorten those that he uses. Now, that basically means uh, to those who, who work in the field of kind of synoptic source criticism, where you're looking for who is the source of whom, yeah. it seems to indicate very strongly that somebody used somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, it would not necessarily indicate that Mark was first. It would indicate that he was in some way a middle term, first used by the other two, last using the other two, or somewhere in between the other two, uh, knowing, say, Matthew and using Matthew, and then being known by Luke and Luke using yeah. him. Those would all be possibilities. Mm -hmm. But there are numerous factors involved, and we don't have time to kind of go through them first, that make it definitely a strong consensus that Mark is the first gospel, usually called Mark and Priority. Mm -hmm. And Mark and Priority is the by far the most common view among all scholars with regard to relationship between Mark and Matthew and Luke. Uh, what's more debatable uh, and there's a, there's a consensus, as you said, that probably Matthew and Luke use Mark independently with another source mm -hmm. that is now lost to us. But there's a strong objection to that consensus from a fairly sizable group of scholars that maintain that Mark was first, but Luke used Mark, and then Matthew used Luke and Mark. But mm -hmm. all of them coalesce and saying that Mark was first. So yeah. Mark and priority, the notion that he probably wrote the first gospel is a very wide consensus in New mm -hmm. Testament scholarship. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that makes some folks think that Matthew and Luke might have used an additional source 
besides just the gospel of Mark is that there appears to be a lot of overlap between things that on the one hand are not in the gospel of Mark, but things that are also in both Matthew and Luke. And so some folks right. have, uh, have argued that there might have been an additional collection of sayings or deeds or something along those lines. For, you know, for, for folks who might not be familiar with uh, synoptic gospel scholarship, this is kind of a, the 10 peso version of sort of what's, what's happening here, that um, Matthew and Luke might have used Mark and an additional source that Matthew and Luke uh, knew about or that early Christians would have known about. And so that's, uh, that's one explanation for why there's a lot of overlap with stuff, not in Mark, that is in both Matthew and Luke. But like you mentioned, the consensus now is that the Gospel of Mark, probably the first one written, um, and that you know, the others would have, um, would have taken Mark, condensed some of his materials, added some of their own. And from a historical standpoint, that does make sense, even, even if you... Um, even if you make a strong case that, uh, say, Gospel of Matthew is uh, written by an eyewitness, you know, Mark has a pretty good outline already prepared, and so it would be it'd be perfectly uh, acceptable for an eyewitness like Matthew to be able to use that kind of uh, that kind of outline available to him. I is that fair to say? I think that's fair, and I would add to that. Uh, I'm one of those who believes in the early Christian tradition that Mark's Gospels to be associated with Peter, mm -hmm. that uh, Mark wrote things that he heard Peter preach. That might not be his only source, but a sure. major source of his information. We find that in uh, Papias and Justin Martyr, both in the first half of the second century. And if you accept that, then even though Matthew would be an eyewitness and Mark would not be an eyewitness, then Mark has the credential of uh, being heavily associated mm -hmm. with Peter. And in fact, it is called the memoirs of Peter by Justin Martyr. And if, if Matthew thought of Mark as Peter's memoirs, then you could easily see why he might incorporate that material, why it might have been a very popular gospel in yeah. the early church. Very true. The connection with an apostle is uh, it, it was a very strong factor in uh, in lending uh, credibility to to the gospel accounts. And so we have gospels attributed to Matthew and John, two of whom would be disciples. You have gospel attributed to Mark, who was a very close associate with Peter, like you mentioned. And then Luke's connection with Paul and his acquaintance, uh, undoubted acquaintance with others in the um, you know, early church, that, uh, that is just one reason why these particular four got to be known as, um, you know, got, to, got to rise to the prominence that they, that they enjoy. So. Absolutely. And, you know, a question that arises is that hypothetical uh, gospel, or maybe not exactly what you call a gospel, a collection of Jesus sayings that might have been used by Matthew and Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke, mm -hmm. it seems to have disappeared, and many think it, well, disappeared because a lot of it was incorporated in Matthew and Luke, and yep. that raises the question, why did Mark not disappear? And a mm -hmm. answer often given to that is Mark didn't disappear because of his association with Peter. Mm. Yeah, I, I, and that, that makes sense. Like I said, and and as as historians, uh, or you know, as folks who are trying to piece together a, a historical explanation for why this, these things happen, uh, that certainly sounds plausible. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And yet, Mark was uh, probably the first gospel in the sense of the first connected account of the whole story mm. from baptism with John the Baptist until uh, Jesus' uh, death and burial and resurrection. Yeah. It's probably the first account of that. And the, the earliest author that we have that talks about that, Papias, says, and, and we don't know for sure that his information is correct, but it's plausible that Peter never put together a sustained account of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. He told various things that happened during Jesus' life 
as the occasion demanded it when he was preaching or teaching in particular settings. Mm -hmm. And Mark then was responsible for pulling together sort of the gospel of Peter. And Mark is closely associated with Peter in the early chapters of Acts and uh, at the end of first Peter, where he calls him my son, Mark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So taking Mark as a, as a narrative, uh, taking the Gospel of Mark as a narrative that you know, that gives us a complete picture, a relatively complete picture of Jesus's adult ministry. When we read the Gospel of Mark, what kinds of expectations do we have, or should we have? What is the literary type or the genre of the Gospel of Mark? And I guess based on that, what kind of expectations should should we come to it with? Okay, that that's been a very debated point. And up until close to a century ago, up until uh, the uh, first half of the 20th century, many scholars who have said Mark was an ancient biography. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it was argued uh, very strongly that uh, Mark and all of the Gospels were a unique genre. Something mm-hmm. that if a bookstore owner in the first century were to get these books and try to figure out where to put them, he would have no idea where to put them uh, so that they are uh, unique. And, and that re- pretty well reigned for about 50 years, roughly from about 1920 to about 1970. Mm-hmm. And then, then you had reassertion beginning in 1970 that no, Mark, Mark is actually the most similar to ancient biographies. And an ancient bookstore owner who was trying to figure out what category to put the gospel of Mark in yeah. would read through it or read any of our gospels and think they probably belong with the biographies, uh, which are often anecdotal, a collection of stories, often not in chronological order often not interested in the physical makeup of the person that they're describing, Mm -hmm. a lot of things that are similar to the gospel, but are usually written to uh, praise or extol a particular person's virtues. Mm -hmm. And and certainly that's one of the things that the gospels do. In addition to that, uh, I would say that there are some things the gospels do that kind of transcend the bounds of a typical biography Very that true. they were they were not uh, proclaiming that salvation is being brought to you through this person who is the Son of God. Uh, that was right. not typical of ancient biographies. Mm-hmm. So um, many modern scholars would call the Gospel of Mark biographical, but not a biography. I don't care too much how you use that language, yeah. but do think that it's correct that it's most like an ancient biography, not a modern biography, right. but like ancient biographies, like the ones written by Plutarch, who wrote multiple biographies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, interesting, you mentioned too, sometime around in the 70s, folks really began to start thinking, eh, well, you know, these might actually be, um, be biographical. It's funny how scholarship will sometimes kind of come and go in, in, in waves like that. Um, that is, that's something that a lot of folks who maybe haven't spent a lot of time in you know, formal biblical education just might not be aware of. But um, it, like you mentioned, back in the 70s, that started to, you know, that started to pick up some steam again. And there was one particular gentleman by the name of Richard Burridge, uh, who, it, for those of you who are kind enough to listen to um, to an earlier episode that I had with Mike Lacona, Richard Burridge set out in his doctoral dissertation to disprove the Gospels were forms of ancient Greco-Roman biography. He, he did not think that was true, and he was going to demonstrate that that was not true. And uh, it turns out he, he actually came around and... Uh, yeah, if you want to put it in sort of you know church terms, he he, uh, he had a conversion. <laughs> he, uh, he he realized that no, actually the gospels make a lot of sense. They they make the most sense being understood as forms of ancient biographies. That's uh, I, I think I think it's kind of a neat story to see to see a guy who is as well known as that for 
this idea. I actually didn't agree with it when he started out. I, I think so as well. And, and Burridge, as you know, is the name most strongly associated hmm. with uh, having demonstrated that, uh, that the Gospels are biographical or belong in the category of ancient biographies. Yep. And uh, we've, we've had his book was out long enough to have a 25th anniversary edition. Yeah. Uh, put out his book, uh, which may have been eight or 10 years ago when the 25th anniversary edition came out. I, I want to say that it was um, maybe just 2018 because I, I, oh, I, that recently. I think it was being pushed at, uh, at, our, at our big biblical studies conference in Denver. Um, and I think that was 2018. I think. Well, I, that, that might I've got be it over here. I can check right. later. But that book is, of course, based upon his dissertation and on his yeah. interest in that. Yeah. And you asked what we should expect of the Gospels. Right, yeah. I think it's quite significant to think of them as biographies or biographical, partly because it emphasizes a historical interest mm -hmm. that they were not writing mythology. There, there's occasionally a scholar coming along saying that they intended to be writing mythology. And they were not very concerned with how this would correspond to historical reality. I think calling them biographies helps with that. It also helps with explaining some of the differences between the Gospels, because ancient biography uh, was uh, not as strict in absolute chronology and various aspects of history reporting mm -hmm as we would expect in modern biographies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All useful things to, for us to know that although we called them biographies, and, and like we said, we can, I think, make the strongest case that the Gospels are forms of ancient biographies, that should not mean that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence with you know, what we would see in a modern biographies you know, section Absolutely. today. Um, there are a lot of differences, and um, if folks are interested, there's a number of resources out there that you can find that um, if you're kind enough to continue listening to the episodes on the podcast uh, in this series on the New Testament, then you'll, you'll be able to find some of those episodes. And let me uh, recommend some things, especially by Mike Lacona and Craig Keener, an episode that's coming out a little bit later uh, on the book of Acts. So, Dr. Black, um, Mark is, uh, Mark is known because of its fast-paced action. It's 16 chapters, and Jesus immediately goes from here and immediately goes there and immediately does this. And he, Jesus really seems like he's sprinting around, uh, around Galilee. What are some, uh, maybe some major emphases of the Gospel of Mark? What are, what are a couple of things that if you go to Mark, you can, you can start seeing these kind of themes or these strands interwoven throughout the, the whole Gospel there? I think the major two strands that you find woven throughout the Gospel of Mark are who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Mm -hmm. And we can express that in more uh, technical terms as uh, Christology mm -hmm. and discipleship. And in, in fact, what I like to do, even just on a personal level, if I'm trying to lead someone to Christ, I'm taking them through the Gospel of Mark. I like to say, uh, read each story and then briefly think back through what does it tell us about who Jesus is and what does it tell us about what discipleship is, what it means to follow him. And the gospel mark seems structured around uh, those two themes. And virtually every story has both of those two themes. And uh, it is very strong on the notion that Jesus' authority is demonstrated in the first half of the book up until Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. And then Jesus begins emphasizing his suffering servanthood, the fact that he's going to lay down his life on behalf of others. And that dominates the second half of the book. And the, the, the first half and the second half work together for the discipleship theme, we need to accept Jesus' absolute authority and submit to it, and we need to follow his example of suffering service to others, and that, that comes out very strongly in the book. 
I think one of the reasons that Mark is the short, brief, action-centered gospel that it is, is to make those themes pop mm. in a way that they don't pop as much in Matthew and Luke and John. Yeah. It's not that those themes are not there. The Christology's theme there is certainly there in all four Gospels. Mm -hmm. Discipleship is certainly there in all four Gospels. But there is a way in which authority pops out in the first half and suffering service in the second half. And the relationship of all that to discipleship pops out that uh, makes Mark unique. And in my opinion, very useful for leading people to Jesus, if that's what you're a lot of people want to use John for that purpose. I would recommend Mark. Really? What? Yes. Uh, let me ask, um, if if you don't mind, why uh, why would you prefer Mark for that than say the Gospel of John? Not not to throw the Gospel of John under the bus, yes. but why why would you yeah. find Mark to be especially it, helpful for that? Well, to an extent, what I should say is I, I might prefer John for persons who are coming from a culture where they know nothing, virtually nothing about Jesus. Okay. But those who are raised in American culture, most of the people I'm familiar with, I prefer the Gospel of Mark because of the strong emphasis in Mark on not only accepting Jesus' authority, but also dedicating your life to sacrificial service, yeah. which is not a thing it's a theme that appears in John, but it doesn't appear with anywhere near the strength that it pops out of the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, yeah. Something else that uh, I think folks might notice while they read through the Gospel of Mark is this peculiar habit of Jesus to encourage people not to tell others about himself or not to tell others that you know, what Jesus has done or not to, not to overly publicize uh, Jesus in certain ways. In, in New Testament studies, there's a technical term for this called the messianic secret. Um, I, I remember as a, as a kid uh, and a teen and a college student reading that and thinking, oh, like, it, it's Jesus why is he backing off on that? That that seems kind of strange. Why would he not want folks to know? Can you help us kind of dig into this notion of the um, the so-called messianic secret a little bit, and, and maybe help shed some light onto why Jesus might uh, might want not might want folks not to overly publicize him? Yeah, I the messianic secret is most strong in the Gospel of Mark. Mm. It is weaker in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, but it appears in those as well. And in John, there's something very similar, but you might speak of the Messianic misunderstanding huh. more than the Messianic secret. Yeah. But I think that there's a similar theme in all four, but Mark is the one that you would have read that you would have thought, boy, what is going on here? Because yeah. it's the one that's very clear that uh, Jesus tells people the heals, not to tell anybody. Jesus tells the disciples when Peter says, you are the Christ, not to tell anyone. Mm -hmm. Jesus coming down from the mountain trans transfiguration says, don't tell anyone this until I've been raised from the dead. And that, that's a one place where he gives a kind of clear time frame. Yeah or when they can uh, make that public acknowledgement. And unfortunately, Mark never tells us in a, any kind of clear fashion right. what motivated Jesus to do this. And yeah. so you, scholars read it and debate, and there are a variety of possibilities that have been suggested. Mm -hmm. uh, two of them, I think, have the best strength to them. Uh, one is the possibility that Jesus does not want public proclamations of his messiahship before he's ready to do that with the triumphal entry and with the things he does during the last week mm -hmm. and is ready to, in effect, bring his life to an end. Mm -hmm. He's ready to go public in a way that's going to bring his ministry to okay. an end. Yeah. And that prior proclamations by his disciples, disciples and by others 
of his authority, of his identity as the Messiah, might have brought the rulers, mm -hmm. uh, Herod or the Roman rulers, down on him uh, before his time. I think that's reasonable. I don't think it's the strongest thing that comes out of Mark as a whole. Okay. What I think comes out of Mark as a whole uh, more comes from the fact that people, including his disciples, when they think Jesus is the Messiah, they think of him as messianic, they have this image of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to rout the Romans, he's going to set up a kingdom in Jerusalem. And uh, there were there be divergent views in Jew, among Jews at this time as to what the Messiah would do. Mm -hmm. But probably the most popular is a kind of militant, political, Davidic leader who is going to go to Jerusalem and set this up. And it seemed pretty clear that the disciples think that, like when James and John say, let us sit on your right hand, your left hand, when you come into your glory. And so the Messianic secret theme from that standpoint, since that could not be proclaimed until after he was raised from the dead, mm -hmm. uh, is thought to be, well, prior proclamations of Jesus as Messiah would give people the wrong idea because the majority of people had the wrong idea in their head. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus wanted to wait till a time when it would be clear that the kind of Messiah he was, was one that would not go to Jerusalem, rout the Romans and set up a kingdom, but one that would go to Jerusalem, upset the Romans and the Jews, and end up dying upon a cross. Yeah. So for Jesus there, what made sense of the, um, of the healings and the proclamations and all these things, the thing that makes those messianic hints actually make sense for what Jesus is trying to do is the crucifixion and resurrection. Is it, is Which it fair? Is, yeah. And that is totally wrongheaded according to most Jews, even Jews who had ideas other than a political messianic a uh, political militant type of ruler who had set up a kingdom in Jerusalem. Even those Jews, to the extent of our knowledge, had no idea of a Messiah who would come and die, be put to death by his own people, put to death by the Romans, and then raised from the dead. That is far-fetched. Yeah. For folks who are interested in, in wanting to learn a little bit more about what kinds of ideas many uh, first century Jewish persons had about the Messiah, they can definitely glean some of those things from the New Testament. You, you need to kind of, mm -hmm. at sometimes maybe read between the lines was sort of what, uh, what some of these folks are thinking, but another resource that some folks can go to is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, that, there's a lot there, and mm -hmm. you'll have to wade through some things, but if you can do a little bit of digging, a little bit of searching, you can find some uh, some pretty good examples of the kinds of thinking that was popular in that time, not just for those folks who were out um, out south uh, near the Dead Sea, but uh, that seems to be a sort of um, sort of representative of how many, uh, maybe not most, certainly not all, but how many uh, many people in Judean Galilee were thinking about about the Messiah. Um, Dr. Black, do you know, besides the Dead Sea Scrolls, is there anywhere else where some folks might be able to go to kind of get a good idea? The, uh, the Psalms of Solomon okay. yeah. uh, have some information that is often cited. To find someone who's kind of bringing this together, uh, the, one of these especially would be kind of academic, but uh, the book by John Collins entitled The Scepter and the Star. Okay pulls together a lot of information from different sources about contemporary messianic thought. And then the book by E.P. Sanders, Ed Sanders, uh, entitled Common Judaism. Uh, and it's, 
BCE 63 to CE uh, 66 basically mm-hmm. covers the time of from the Roman captivity of Palestine until the uh, the time that the Romans come in to destroy Jerusalem. It's, it's focusing on that period that's the most relevant to Jesus. It has chapters on various areas of mm-hmm. common Jewish belief in that time, yeah. one of which would be their thoughts about a Messiah. One other resource that I'd, I'd it would have a, a more academic bent, but I still, still think would be accessible. I, I forget the full name of the author. Um, the, the title of the book is From the Maccabees to the Mishnah. And I, I forget the, the full name of the author there. Um, I've got it around here somewhere. Is but that I Nicholsburg? I, I don't think that's Nicholsburg uh, or Vanderkamp. Uh, I apologize for folks who, uh, who are <laughs> listening. Um, I'm hunting around on my bookshelves over here, and I, I just can't. Um, I, I, it, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, it, it, anyway, if I think about it at some point, during this i'll i'll mention it but uh, and i can also put a link to that in the description as well um and so these are some other things that might help folks kind of get a get a sense of okay why would jesus's disciples think that jesus is going to be a military leader why then would jesus necessarily be careful about you know going around saying hey i'm the messiah um y'all come follow me and especially if he's doing such incredible deeds of power like you know healing the sick, casting out demons, even raising the dead, that, man, you know, if, you're, if your concept of a Messiah is military leader and you can raise the dead, um, aren't you ultimately unbe- unbeatable, right? Yeah, yes. so that's why. And, and if you can feed great armies with a few loaves. Exactly. Vicious. Yeah, exactly. All, all legitimate reasons why it would make sense for, for Jesus to, uh, to feel a need to be careful about about uh, publicizing a misunderstanding of his um, of his role as Messiah, there, Doctor Black. What uh, what we've talked a lot about this kind of thing, and so if there's something that you want to draw from from what we've already said, that's fine. What uh, what's what contributions does the Gospel of Mark make to the New Testament that we might not see elsewhere? Uh, you've mentioned this sort of messianic secret. Is there anything else that comes to mind that that is especially especially from Mark or uniquely from Mark that uh, that helps us understand the New Testament? I think the uh, sharpness of his focus on this theme of discipleship is a special contribution. Yeah. I think from a scholarly point of view, the fact that he was probably the first person to put together a gospel within early Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, by the time Luke writes, which is in my opinion, not terribly much later, but by the time Luke writes, he is able to say that many have drawn up an account of things that have happened among us. Now, even if Luke knew Mark and Matthew, and there would be, I think, no one who would say he knew John, because everyone would think John comes along in a later time. His word, many, suggests uh, more than Mark and Matthew. (laughs) You'd think, right? Yeah, but so far as we know, Mark seems to be the first, the first mm-hmm. to come out and put this story together. I think another thing that comes out strongly in his gospel, although we don't normally think of Mark in this way, is that he puts together the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Mm-hmm. And even though he doesn't have a large number of citations in his book from the Old Testament, he begins with a citation from yeah. the Old Testament and begins talking about that in fulfillment terms, that the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is, and he starts off immediately with a combination of Isaiah and Exodus and uh, Malachi. Yeah. Malachi, I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he, he lays the whole thing as a story of fulfillment. So it's a continuation of God's Old Testament 
plans. Yeah, you're right that not a lot of folks, I think, would immediately go to the Gospel of Mark for that, because you know, my favorite gospel is the Gospel of Matthew. And in those first two chapters, Matthew hits you on the head with it. This was spoken, or this happened, yes. to fulfill the word spoken by the prophet so-and-so. Like Matthew, Matthew wants you to see painfully clearly that this is what's happening here. Mark is, uh, Mark is straightforward, but might be a little bit more subtle than that. I think that's correct. Yeah. Um, there's recently a book been published called Vox Petri, which okay. is Latin for the voice of Peter. V-O-X, right? Yeah, V-O-X, Vox Petri, Latin for the voice of Peter by a man named Gene Green. Okay. And what uh, Gene Green argues, he takes Mark and the Petrine material in Acts, which would include uh, Peter's uh, speeches, Mm -hmm. uh, including the one at Pentecost, the one to Cornelius, and others in the book of Acts. And then he would take uh, particularly the epistle of 1 Peter and say that even though two of these don't directly come from Peter, Acts and Mark, and the third was probably shaped, he believes, by Silas as amanuensis or mm -hmm. what in modern times we call a secretary that was given some freedom for how he uh, shaped the sentences and vocabulary and so forth of first yeah. Peter. He would say we have the voice of Peter nonetheless and he tries to write a theology of Peter based on that material. Interesting. And in that theology what he ends up saying is that a lot of the things that are in a theology of Peter, we think of as very elementary and common uh, to the early church, like the notion that this story was the fulfillment of the Old Testament material. But he says, if you think about it, Peter is the first one to stand and proclaim that. And he proclaims it in Acts 2. It appears very strongly in Mark. Mm -hmm. It appears very clearly in First Peter, and he ultimately argues that a theology of, of Peter doesn't come up with a lot that is unique and not found elsewhere in the New Testament, but it was probably very foundational yeah. for all the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it becomes common themes in early Christianity is partly because it was Peter's theology. Yeah, that just after hearing this uh just just right now that really does make a lot of sense yeah that peter wouldn't necessarily so. peter wouldn't have the opportunity by being the first and therefore being the one upon which everybody else builds peter almost certainly would not have had the opportunity to come back later and then add a unique contribution like say the author of hebrews where jesus exists in, as a priest in the order of Melchizedek or something along those lines. So something like that, which is a very unique and interesting contribution to how we understand Jesus. I, that, that really does make a lot of sense. I, I'm intrigued in this book. How, how do you spell green? Is it two I E's or like three? The color. Two okay. E's. Great. <clears throat> right. G-E-N-E, green, Vokes Petri. I think the subtitle is The Theology of Peter. Cool. And um, so he is trying to look at all these works and see how they come together. And he basically ends up saying, most of Peter's theology looks to us kind of like old hat because it winds through all the scriptures. Mm -hmm. But Peter deserves a position as foundational. And we can talk about his theology. And there are a few exceptions where he would have something that was very unusual, mm -hmm. like the preaching of Christ uh, to the spirits in prison in First Peter chapter three. First Peter three, but yeah. There would not be very much in the Gospel of Mark that comes out as unique and unusual. Yeah, and not very much in the rest of it, whether uh, Peter's presentations in Acts uh, or later on in his epistles. Yeah. As we um, as we begin to kind of wind down our, our time together this morning, Doctor Black, um, let me ask. For those who would open up their Bible and read through the Gospel of Mark, and they would come to chapter 16, the last chapter there, 
Uh, undoubtedly, if you have some kind of study Bible or any kind of Bible that has any kind of uh, notes or helps or something like that, undoubtedly readers will find some notice like this after Mark chapter 16, verse 8. I have an older edition of the New American Standard here uh, with me, and there's a study note here that says about Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Serious doubt exists as to whether these verses belong to the Gospel of Mark. They're absent from important early manuscripts and display certain peculiarities of vocabulary, style, and theological content that are unlike the rest of Mark. His gospel probably ended at 16.8, or its original ending has been lost. That's uh, from the New American Standard Bible. I've got an older NIV, the one that was published originally in 1984. I say older. I was only born in 85, so not that much older, okay? <laughs> not that much older. Um, but we have uh, here, right before Mark chapter 16, verse 9, in small text, in brackets, in the middle of the column, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. And the same study note verbatim is given. Serious doubt exists as to whether these verses belong to the Gospel of Mark, etc. You have a, a newer edition of the NIV there with you. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and, and what does it say, uh, or how, like, or, or is the text formatted differently to give us some indication about what's going on with these verses? Yes, in fact, they have almost identically the same note within the text. Mm -hmm. But before that, they have a line that divides it off. And then the text itself is put in a little smaller print and then italics. I don't like their new footnote as well, because I think they should have preserved the old footnote to tell you more about verses 9 through 20. Because all they do in their new footnote, some manuscripts have the following ending between verses 8 and 9, and one manuscript has it after verse 8, omitting verses 9 through 20. And then they give the very short ending. Then they quickly reported all these instructions to those around Peter, and after this, Jesus himself also sent them from east to west, also sent from east and west with the imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Mm -hmm. Amen. So they have removed the footnote that explains further why there's some doubt about verses 9 through 20 yeah. and included a footnote that gives an ending that no one believes has any originality to the gospel of Mark. Yeah. Now, it does add to that alternate ending adds to the manuscript evidence we have, which mm -hmm. comes from our earliest manuscripts that have the ending of Mark, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus in the fourth century, and comes from church fathers uh, during uh, roughly that same period of time, mm -hmm. that there's something astray about the ending of the Gospel of Mark. And in in fact, uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, neither one have anything about verse, yeah. anything past verse 8. I have thought for many years, I, most of my uh, academic career, I have thought verses 9 through 20 were not, probably not original to Mark. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think there are many ways, if you look at the content of them, they're kind of a brilliant ending to Mark. Right. But I think they're probably not originally written by Mark. But I, I leaned towards the notion that Mark probably ended with verse 8. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the past several years, I have leaned towards the notion that the original ending of Mark was very quickly lost. Mm -hmm. uh, lost early enough that no one knows where it is and that someone came up with these alternate endings because they felt that it didn't appropriately end at verse 8. I would say the majority of contemporary scholars, 
believe that Mark originally ended at verse eight. But there was a sizable group, especially well noted by a book by Clayton Croy, yeah. uh, called The Mutilation of Mark. And Croy argues and gives you a detailed list of everyone else, N.T. Wright and others who agree with him that the ending, original ending Mark was probably lost. Yeah. And I, I've I'm, I'm leaning that direction at the moment, mm-hmm. but it's one of those things that if I wrote another commentary on Mark, I'd have to decide what I was going <laughs> to say by the time I got to the end. Right. Yeah. I might find myself disagreeing with what I had already written. Right. Yeah. 15, uh, you've got 15 chapters to figure that out. Um, That's right. <laughs> so to kind of recap the issue here with the, with the end of the Gospel of Mark, um, one reason why a lot of folks think that it seems strange for the gospel to end at chapter 16, verse 8, is because in Greek, it ends on a preposition. And so it's... Uh, no conjunction. I, I, no, I was going to say, yeah, right I, I'm, having, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm yes, having to stop, but I can think, yeah, so I, I misspoke, yeah. Ends in a conjunction. Uh, so something like, you know, and, or, but, you know, something along those lines, it, it ends with a word like that where you would not expect it to end like just greek grammar is a little bit more flexible than english grammar so it's not unheard of for greek sentences to end ends in a conjunction but it just it strikes one as kind of odd and uh, there's also you know there's not really much else in the way of you know and jesus uh, eventually appeared to them and said hey y'all y'all need to go and do this and you know complete this mission, fulfill this mission that I've given you, or, or anything along those lines. And so some folks seem, it seems like there was a shorter ending that uh, people who were reading this uh, hundreds, uh, thousand plus years ago thought, uh, we might need to add this. And then there was a longer ending that has uh, a verse familiar for many folks that, were, that we know, uh, verses added added about um, baptism and things like that. One quick note about this, Dr. Black, if you don't mind. Is there anything in the Gospel of Mark, in the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark, so verses 9 through 20, is there anything in here that um, that people could look at and not find elsewhere in the New Testament? I'm thinking of maybe yeah. around verse 18, this issue of snakes They'll pick up yes. snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. That's strange, but the rest of it about going into the world, preaching, baptism, signs, you know, healing others. I mean, we see all we see all of that kind of stuff in Acts. So, is there any I, reason for us to be suspicious about what's in this longer ending? I think uh, that the rest of it is, in fact, echoed everywhere else in the New Testament. And I have no problem with his statements that begin in verse 17. In my name, they will drive up demons and they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. If you think that that is describing a kind of liturgy for the early church that then, then I think speaking in tongues or driving out demons or healing people could be fairly regular activities. Mm-hmm. I myself doubt that, that Mark intends to suggest that they went and picked up snakes in person uh, on purpose, right, like yeah. they kept them in boxes and they took them out during their worship, right. or they drank poison on purpose, yeah. like they brought it to their worship or activities where they got together and ingested it. There is, of course, a very small group of Christians, many of whom are in the Appalachian region, mm-hmm. uh, who think that should be a part of their worship, and they yeah. get it from here. And that is, to them, absolutely foundational. If you're going to pick up snakes as part of your worship or drink poison as part of it, you're going to need a text that suggests you really ought to do that. Yeah, And you're only going to find that here. Yeah, and, and these, like you said, the activities uh, mentioned here in these verses, um, they really seem more, more descriptive, more incidental, rather than prescriptive. Yes. 
Yeah. I think that's right. So, um, and so bottom line with this particular issue then is it really does seem like this longer ending of Mark was, was not original. And you know, the, the earliest manuscripts that we have all do end at verse eight. Um, but from a devotional standpoint or a preaching standpoint, there doesn't appear to be anything, if, if properly understood, there doesn't appear to be anything in these longer verses that is contradicted elsewhere. It, it, is, is, that, is that a good kind of simplified version of, of the issues here? I think it is. And, and it has been known and popular uh, from the fifth century forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very strongly. And so I, I spoke a while ago that not, not only in academic sense, that kind of thing, do I focus on Mark, but I like to focus on Mark in individual one-on-one -on -one study with someone I'm leading to Christ. Mm -hmm. In that respect, I find it frustrating to come to the ending of Mark and uh, to need to explain this and talk about it. But usually we do that and then I go ahead and read these verses and acknowledge that the things that they are encouraging, which is actually the point at which you might say to someone, well, having read Mark and worked through it, are you ready to be baptized? That uh, that is useful information that is found uh, within yeah. other parts of scripture. Very true. Dr. Blake, the last thing I ask about is something, uh, something a little more personal. Do, do you have a favorite story or a favorite uh, anecdote from the Gospel of Mark? And uh, if so, um, would you mind sharing that with us? I think my favorite would be when John and James come to Jesus and ask to sit on his right hand on his left. Because that is the culmination of, in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, where that occurs, there is a threefold repetition of a three-part pattern where Jesus says, I'm going to go and sacrifice myself in Jerusalem, where the disciples indicate they don't understand it, and where Jesus corrects them and says, not only am I going to do this, but you will have to take up your cross and follow me. Mm -hmm. All three of those are, I would say, my favorite parts of Mark. The reason I particularly point to this one at the end is that right after Jesus predicts his death, James and John come up and show that they don't understand it at all. And then he calls the other disciples, all of them together, and he repeats in detail and ends up saying in chapter 10 and verse 45, that, uh, that 10, 40, about 44 and 45, that they need to be servants because he came to give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many. Yeah. And so that pattern is very explicit in this section and the importance of us uh, not sharing James and John's me first kind of attitude, but rather sharing Jesus me last and willingness to sacrifice and give themselves up yeah very true dr black it has been an honor to catch back up with you again i have uh, I, i've enjoyed to enjoyed getting to spend this time with you the very first time that i sat in any class period with you was on a campus visit i think in the spring of 2010 and I think it was on the Gospel of Mark. And we were there in the in the big classroom there, um, a classroom building on campus in Memphis. And uh, that was that was my first uh, kind of first experience with you. I knew, knew your brother uh, who had preached at my home congregation for uh, for several years back in Nashville. And uh, it's an honor now, uh, ten years later, um, ele eleven years later. Are we still in 2020? <laughs> 2021. Yeah. But 11 years later, it's an honor to be able to do this with you and um, to be, to, to, be uh, to some degree, your, your co-faculty member as, uh, as a lowly adjunct of, uh, of elementary Greek <laughs> to sit here with you and talk with you about the Gospel of Mark. 
it's been an honor to be asked and to have the opportunity twice, no less, to come and to be right. part of your podcast. I think you were doing a really good thing with your podcast. And uh, you're one of the students that I am the most proud of having had a significant part in their education. I'm very proud of uh, who you are and of what you're doing. Thank you, sir. That, that really means a lot. I, um, when I, whenever I tell anybody that I'm about to do, uh, do something with you, either, you know, phone call or, um, or an interview, I'll, I'll always tell them, you know, I'm, I'm about to talk to the venerable Alan Black. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it, that term. <laughs> right. Um, I, I'll use that as a, for a living person, right? We won't just reserve that for somebody who has gone off. <laughs> Dr. Blank, it was a pleasure, sir. Take care. God bless. And uh, we will see you again next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.